0: We're we're coming to the book of Ezra, and I've I've really grappled with how to approach this book as we've, uh, we're going through each of the books of the Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah were some think they were actually written as one book. I don't know where I stand on that, but it's it's very clear that there's a very specific purpose for this book being written. And, and I hope that, that you see that today as we look at this amazing portion of Scripture. You know, honestly, if, if you look at our governing authorities today, um, it as an individual, it brings concern it brings pause when we look at at those in leadership you can turn on any news station and we we hear reports of corruption we hear reports of lies and honestly it it can cause one just to to shake their head in disgust. Like, well, this is going to be a good message. (laughs) It would be a grave danger, however, for us to, to look at the media, to look at the society in which we live, and form our theology on how we view authority based off of those things in fact it would be a very dangerous thing when we come to scripture we read portions of scripture that speak to authority like that in first peter first peter says in chapter 2 verse 13 if i can find it right Too many highlights in this book. Submit yourselves, Peter says, for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governing authorities as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. We come to a passage like that, and we almost bristle. We can turn the page and go over to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 read this way. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority let Let that sink in right there. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever res- resists authority has opened the ordinance of uh, sorry. Opposed. My vision is really struggling today, folks. I apologize. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You know, it's easy to follow authority, leaders when they're doing what they should it's easy to follow authority when they agree with us or we agree with them it's a little bit harder when they're stupid it's a little bit harder when they they act in opposition to what is good. And I don't have to go into detail to help you understand what I'm talking about. However, as we continue our study, and we are in the book of Ezra, I open this way because... It is crucial that we understand history, the divine history that is occurring here, and the perspective that God is is showing us in order to understand how that view needs to impact today. divine authority here's a fun little chart for you there by the way these images and all of that are online they will be online if you want those later but I want to just look at some of the divine authority that we see in in our study it's an amazing um, study of the powers and rulers as we look at what God has been doing It begins with a man named Nebuchadnezzar. This whole narrative really does. And Nebuchadnezzar, oh, he's a dandy of a ruler. I tell you what, we'll learn more about him in Daniel. But he's the one that goes and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and takes the people of Judah into captivity. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that God uses to bring about the 70 years of captivity and punishment to his people Judah. However, it's fascinating when we when we look at Daniel, it's also Nebuchadnezzar who has the greatest statement in scripture concerning God and his authority. Look at what this king writes. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says this, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raise my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say this, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth Are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? What a description of authority and power! sovereignty and this man nebuchadnezzar declares that the people would go into exile they would be there 70 years jeremiah is is actually the one who who told them that they would be there i i want to read this from jeremiah by the way because well i think some of us take this passage out of context actually i know A lot of people take this passage out of context. But Jeremiah is writing to Judah, the people of God, and he says in chapter 29, verse 10, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. God declared that through Jeremiah. They knew they would be there for 70 years. That's a long time out. And then God says this, for I know, everybody's going, oh, that one. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a, everybody say that word, hope. God declared this to Israel. God declared this to his people. This is what's coming for you. After... The seventy years. Then you will be called upon, uh, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you. From all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Do you realize that in Jeremiah, God says, I will bring you back. I have sent you there. What an interesting thing to be in the place God has called you, understanding that you will be there until he calls you back. And the people were told this by Jeremiah. And then we come to the study of Chronicles, and we looked at the final two verses last week. It's interesting that those very verses are the very words that Ezra opens up with. You remember those words? Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. Look with me. Now, in the first year of Cyrus. Ooh, another ruler. Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. The words we just read. In order to fulfill that. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, here's a pagan king making a declaration because a god God Almighty stirred his heart. Why? Because God Almighty promised back here, this is what would happen. Listen to the words. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever... Look at verse 3. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. How would that happen? What would stir within this pagan king? Well, if you read one more book, I tell you what, these prophetic books are going to be so fun understanding the history of Israel. As we go back and look at these prophets and where they are and what they're saying, it's going to be amazing. But look at Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet to the people of Judah before the exile. Did everybody catch that? Before the exile, before they are in captivity for 70 years, Isaiah comes and he declares to the people this. I love this. Chapter 44, verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, this is God speaking to the people, He is my shepherd. Pause right there. My shepherd, my servant. God is speaking of a pagan ruler who will be in the future and says, he is my shepherd, he is my servant. Let that sink in. And I wonder if Cyrus, you know, going through the archives, comes across the scroll of Isaiah and goes, "Whoa!" I don't know. We know that Alexander the Great came across the book of Daniel and was like, really? That's for another message. But what if he read these words? He's my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. Is your God becoming a little bit bigger? Is your God becoming a little bit more capable of handling the situation that you see in your world today? This is before the exile, people. It's going to do all of God's desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Wow! Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Remember, no one comes into power except those who God places there for his purpose. Cyrus is God's anointed. Let that sink in. To subdue the nations before him. And to loosen the irons of the kings, the loins of the kings. To open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. God's going to go before Cyrus, pave the way for Cyrus to do a work, a desire that God wants to do. like, "Wow, this is quite an introduction. We've hardly got into Ezra. I know this is amazing. Because as we go through Ezra, we are seeing God work in amazing ways. Daniel, oh my goodness, when we get to Daniel, that's going to be fun. He gets to work with Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Merdis, Darius, I'm mean, all of them. And these are all individuals who rule with authority and they're vicious. You go through the history and you look, these are not nice gentlemen. I mean, they're world dictators for a reason. And God has put them there. Darius, Darius, I don't know how you pronounce it. Tomato, tomato. God uses him to renovate the temple. See, the work of Cyrus begins, Smyrna's here, that guy, he goes and stops the temple work. But Darius, he comes, he sees what Cyrus put in order, and he says, No, we're going to start this thing back up. Ezra talks about it. The way God is working through these leaders, these authorities. I, I hope that after today, you will pray for those in leadership with a whole new perspective. Understanding that God is doing a work. It is God who raises up Artaxerxes or Xerxes. Most scholars believe that the two individuals are, are the same in, in Scripture. He has one of the longest reigns of, of all these rulers. Do you realize that, that it's Artaxerxes that, that sends back Ezra? The second, second group of individuals going back to Jerusalem, God raises him up for that. And then Esther will be there in a few weeks. It's interesting how this king is there and God is, is, is using this ruler in such powerful, magnificent ways. Yet as you look at the day-by-day thing, it just seems to go about as normal. But God uses this king to preserve the Jewish people from extinction. He uses him to declare that, that Ezra should go back and rebuild the people. He uses this king to go and send Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls. Do you see how God is using these leaders throughout? God has put these men in places of authority for His purpose, His plan, and His desire. You know, you could live with a lot less stress if you stopped watching the news and just started watching God. realizing that God has things in control he's never been out of control and those in power are there for his purpose his plan and guess what God's not always telling us his plan he tells us his will we know that crystal clear but he doesn't always tell us his plan Israel was lucky they knew 70 years We don't have time frames all the time. I want to quickly look at a divine view of history. This this was fun for me. I I got diving into Ezra and I was studying it and I'm going, man, I'm too close. Have you ever studied a whole book and realized you're just too close? I had to back up a little bit. It was exciting because as I backed up, I realized, wow, you know what? Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and you throw in Esther there, they're actually all one kind of grouping of writings. And we're seeing a group of writings from God's perspective of history. Let's look real quick at what God is doing here. When we looked at Chronicles last week, we saw God's perspective, didn't we? We saw that that King David came onto the scene, the man that God chose, the one that would establish his throne forever. Wow! And from his line, we saw that that he used Solomon to build the temple. And what a beautiful, beautiful temple it was and the worship that came. Oh, it was magnificent. And, And the temple was built. We saw how God Basically forgot about all those that disregarded him, he disregarded himself. We know there was sin. We know that there were those who didn't follow, but God recognizes those who follow Him. What a beautiful picture, and we saw those kings that, that followed after God's heart, but there was still sin, and we see that they go into exile. God deals with sin if you look at any portion of history you see that God deals with sin then we come to Ezra in the first part of Ezra and I promise we're going to get to where we overlook it okay I promise but when in the first part of Ezra we're we're told to that that the temple is going to be rebuilt wow And, and we see a remnant of people returning to Judah this is exciting God's promises are being fulfilled and then we kind of have an interlude with with Ezra in between these two events is Esther and Esther we see God do an amazing work of preserving his people it's wonderful you read that book and not once is the name of God mentioned but everywhere do you see his fingerprints and we're looking at these writings going wow God you're working and then we come to the second part of Ezra where God sends back the second group of, of people to his, their land. And instead of rebuilding a temple, God is rebuilding His people. Reestablishing their hearts for worshiping, worshiping Him. Dealing with sin. And then Nehemiah. We see that That the building is complete. The walls are built up. You know, we see as we look at these books, as we look at this, that God is orchestrating things. I love that word, orchestrating. I've had the privilege of going to multiple orchestra concerts, it's not one instrument. It's not a piano recital. There is multitude of, of instruments and individuals, all. In, and honestly, I've, I've listened to some of them practicing their part. Just their part, and you're just like, that doesn't make sense. Especially the, the percussion. Percussion. Ah, that's going to sound great. You put it into an orchestra and you're like, whoa. See, the problem is, is when we look at history, we're, we're just seeing little parts. When we step and look at these books and we step back and take a moment to look, we see the orchestra. We see how beautiful it is, God bringing all of this together. And we look at that, we listen to what God is doing and it just sounds beautiful. Just like listening to that music. And We sit back and we praise God. That's what these books are doing. And Ezra gives just a a part of that glimpse of the work of what God is doing. And I love that we see these two parts. Look at at Ezra with me. We're going to look at the overview of Ezra now. You're like, wow, that was quite an introduction. I'm not really sure if this is an introduction because you have to grasp what God is doing on a global stage, on a on a bigger picture, to understand how God is working in this little book of Ezra, ten chapters, in such a powerful way. It's a very clear distinction between the two parts: chapters one through six and seven through ten. Very distinct sections. But God is working, and the theme throughout this book is restoration. I am so glad, as I read this book, that you and I serve and worship a God who is in the work of restoring. Taking something broken, run down, old, and making new again we have a restorative God. That's why He sent His Son. It says when we enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ, we are a new creation. We're not a better old model. We're a new creation. He is in the work of restoring. This is a new temple. This is a new group of people. This is new worship here, and they are coming back. He is making what was old new fresh, alive. And we see this work. There's, there's, there's three things we see in each section. First of all, God raises up a man for himself. A man that will lead the people back to him. Oh, we need people like that. We see that as the work is being done, they will face obstacles. Obstacles. We see that in both sections. We see it in Nehemiah as well. Obstacles are always going to be present. We should expect resistance when we engage in the work of the Lord. Because there is an enemy, and he does not agree. He does not want God's people to succeed. And what's interesting is in each section, we kind of see a climax. But it's a climax that's anticlimactic. Have you ever had a climax like that? That's just anticlimactic. You're expecting, you're hoping, it comes and it's there. We, we kind of see that here. It, it almost leaves us wanting more. In chapters 1 through 6, the temple is rebuilt. The place of worship. The sacrifices are are reinstituted and and performed. The priests are are doing their their duties. It's wonderful. God uses this man, Zerubbabel. I love saying his name. It's just fun. It just rolls off the tongue and keeps rolling. You know, Zerubbabel. But do you realize that this man here is actually a descendant of King David? He's a prince. He's from his line. And God uses this man to bring the people back, to build up his temple for worship. Wow. And and as the people are are getting ready um, and they're building, there's there's adversity there's obstacles there's people that really don't want this temple to come back do you realize there's obstacles even today we don't see we're seeing it more but we don't see it anywhere near like the rest of the world does when we worship the one true God there will be opposition and they face that and it, it pauses for a while God is faithful. He brings along two prophets. We'll look at them later. But Haggai and Zechariah, two of those minor prophets that we get to look at. They're minor because they're smaller, which will be a lot easier for reading. But, but they're not minor in the message. And they come and they encourage the people and they, they, they fortify the hearts of the people. Oh, how God is faithful to send His messengers in times of distress. And God uses, oh, King Darius. He intervenes, he sees what's going on and he reinstitutes the the decree that Cyrus put forth and they rebuild that temple. It's interesting, however, that when they rebuild that temple, it's mixed emotions. That that anti-climatic climax. Because as they build that temple, There's two groups of people there. There's the ones that have come out of captivity, never saw the original temple, and they're going, yay! But there's that older generation that remembers. How many of you have ever caught yourself saying, back in my day, funny, sometimes my day doesn't seem so long ago. And they remembered back in my day the temple of Solomon. Its splendor, its glory. They build the temple. Chapter 3, verse 12. It shows the hearts of both groups. It says, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men, who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. What a contrast. So that people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people for the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard from far away the temple was being built but it left them wanting more and that's where it's left. Seventy-five years would pass from the first Exodus to the second one, and on the scene comes another godly man, Ezra. Most likely the author of Chronicles, Ezra for sure, and and maybe even likely Nehemiah. But this godly man comes onto the scene, and and the way that God describes him in in the Scriptures is is absolutely amazing chapter 7 verse 10 look at this it says of Ezra for Ezra had set his heart this is a heart decision his heart to study the law of the Lord and so often it stops right there I'm gonna study I'm gonna study I'm gonna study so I know no 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 I can answer all the questions right But he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it. Put it into practice. Not only did he practice it, he took it another step further. And to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Wow. What a man, and, and Artaxerxes sees the character of this man, Ezra. Ezra is the one who is going to lead his people back to the Word of God. Ezra is the one that is going to establish the spiritual leadership amongst these people. He is the one who is going to set in place authorities for them, to lead them. That's Ezra. Ezra. And we see that God uses this man. He's bold, he's clear, he's direct. And then the obstacle. Do you know what the obstacle is to spiritual growth? It's a three-letter word. It's called sin. Sin always stunts spiritual growth. Ezra Hears of the sin of the people. He rips his clothes. He, he pulls his hair out. I've been grieved, but I, I, I want to hold on to what hair I have. But he sees the sin and he rips his hair out. He tears his clothes. He grieves. He fasts. He prays. Do you know what the people were doing? They had come back to the land. once again, they were taking for themselves wives from these pagan peoples. And as they would take those wives, their hearts would be drawn to their gods. Their practices, their sin. And it breaks Ezra's heart. It breaks the hearts of the people. Do you know who led this? It was the leaders of the people that were doing this. They pray, they cry out, and then they come to a conclusion. We're going to deal with this sin. And everybody's like, amen, deal with it. We're going to divorce the wives and send the kids away. Whoa. Really? Really? theologians are mixed on this it's it's a very difficult thing the question of does two wrongs make a right we read in malachi another wonderful prophet that god hates divorce so is this the right thing should they divorce these wives and send the kids away it's the idea of the people and they, they, they take sin serious. Kudos for that. But once again, we have the, the, the man leading the people. They're excited for it. They're cleansing the, the, the nation of sin. They face the obstacle of sin, but they're cleansing it. It's that once again, the anticlimactic climax. And they push them out. I'll give you my professional theological answer to this idea. I don't know. God doesn't say thus says the Lord you should do this. It doesn't say that they were wrong in doing this. It shows that they took sin, the sin of the people serious. But let's face the fact, sin is messy. Sin is disgusting. And sin does nothing but destroy the lives of people. Let's call it what it is. And this is destructive. It's divisive. It hurts. And it leaves them wanting more. It leaves the people wanting more. And we come to our authority. Our authority. You know, it's interesting in this world, If this is all we have, any climatic event is going to leave you wanting. It's never going to be enough. It's going to fall short. You know why? Because what you and I are wanting is God sized. It can only be fulfilled and and the desire can only be quenched through him. They were wanting worship. They were wanting a temple. And God says, come to me. God wanted them. God wants you. They were wanting to be free from sin. And Christ offered it. He, he sacrificed Himself on the cross. He shed His blood that we could bear, we could put on His righteousness Finally, something that would fill that void. They looked for a temple. It wasn't as good as the one before. No, but guess what? When Jesus came, you and I become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow! The Spirit of God comes to indwell you and I. We see such a beautiful picture of the Messiah throughout this book. And the hope. The Messiah would not be born in Babylon in captivity. No. The Messiah, as Isaiah would predict, would come from Bethlehem. In Israel. Of Judah. And God preserved a remnant. Honestly, that that word... Discourages me a little bit. Remnant, a small group of people. But they were faithful. They came. That remnant included Judah, Levi, Benjamin, and bits and pieces of all the other tribes. They came back to worship. They came back to serve the Lord. Unfortunately, there was a large number that said, you know, captivity is kind of cool. I like it. I'm kind of comfortable here. It's like being in a prison cell. The gates open, the door is open wide for you, and you stay there going, this is good. It says that wide is the path that leads to hell, narrow is the gate that goes to heaven why because only a remnant chooses once you and I have a right view of authority then we can have a right view of God if we're placing our hope and our anticipations in in earthly authority then we're saying that God is out of control. He has no control over the circumstances. You and I need to understand that God is working. Our God is in control. And those who are in leadership now are there for His purpose, His plan. And guess what? You may not be privy to that plan. Are you comfortable with that? Are you comfortable with a God who can do that? Who does do that? If not, then your God is too small. Plain and simple. God used pagan kings. Servants of his. Maybe unwilling, but servants nonetheless. God used faithful men. God used teachers. God used people. And God wants to use you. God wants to use me. Are you going to allow Him to? Are you going to let Him use you for His plan and His purpose now? We look back at a divine history to understand that he's still working. I pray that you and I have a heart like Ezra's. One that desires to study the Word of God. Upon studying it, desires to practice it. Put it into daily life. Oh, and that we would be so enamored with this God that we would teach it to others. Let's pray. God, you place into position authorities. God, you have placed each of us where we are at for your plan and your purpose. God, I pray like Zerubbabel and Ezra and many others that we would be willing servants to follow you. God, that we would seek to know you and make you known to those around us. God, I thank you that you are big enough, you are powerful enough, you are omniscient enough to keep things in control. God, I pray that our picture of you would be grander and greater as we leave here today.